So choice is a really big thing. And I think that's where we as complementary practitioners come in because we have these other ways of of listening and diagnosing. We have these other ways of, of relating and communicating that the medical people don't have. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. If you read this month's newsletter, then what I'm about to say is going to sound a bit like an echo. In that newsletter, I talked about how we cannot be reasoned out of something that we weren't reasoned into in the first place. We are all at the mercy of the stories in our head. We can blame it on ignorance, we can blame it on delusion or selfishness, greed, or pretty much anything that makes us angry, fearful, or for that matter, hopeful. I've had this lesson taught to me time and again. Patients have their own story of how the world is put together, and it's somehow easier to take it in stride when it is someone with whom I have a professional relationship with. Part of the agreement of that relationship is that we can be connected even though our personal creation stories of the world bear nothing in common. And even if we hold vastly different values in our professional relationships, we meet in a neutral zone and put our differences aside as we work to help our patients. That is the common ground upon which we stand. It's both a refuge and a container. And that alone creates the conditions for something to emerge that does not have its roots entangled in opinion, strife, and belief. I've been thinking a lot lately about the divisions here in the United States. It would seem we are anything but united. We are not just divided red and blue, liberal or conservative, male, female, or none of the above. We are tribal. We live between the grindstones of heaven and earth. And at that undifferentiated heavenly level of quantum potential, we are indeed one. But down here on earth, in this realm of restriction and form, we are not one. We are a fractious mosaic of belonging. We think that if others thought more like us, then our problems would go away. We use our rationalizing story-making to give credence to the emotions that in fact run our lives. But we are not run by logic or by reason. We're run by emotion. Sure, love and belonging are there in the mix, mixed right in with hatred and a desire not just to be separate from those who trigger our vitriol, anger, and fear, but if we could do away with them, all the better. All the spiritual traditions that I poke my nose into do carry this message of love, unity, and oneness. It's a heavenly energy. It's a potential that exists. But here in the world of form, history, and unfolding, it's a different situation. Can you find a way to expand your sense of us to include those to whom you wish ill? Not in a unicorns and rainbows way of ignoring differences, but from a position of recognizing our shared difficulty and finding common ground with those who we think represent the worst in humanity. Can you recognize that a person who wishes you ill has the same desires for safety, connection, love, dignity, and meaning. It's so easy to dismiss others as those idiots over there, those, well, fill-in-the-blank people that you see as the problem. And really, I suspect none of us are immune. Yes, at that heavenly level, we are one. One with the creatures that fly and swim and sink roots deep into the earth and everything within and beyond our senses. 
But that does not help us navigate the hotian, the post-heaven, this earthly realm, with a nervous system that's always scanning for danger. It feels safer in a tribe, and most of the time it is. Here in this world where thought and emotion are so entangled that we can't think something without our physiology responding, and where our responses in turn generate thoughts that push us into action, it is almost impossible to free ourselves from the narratives of people like us do things like this, and people like them do things like that, and so around and around we go. The beginning of so many problems is that I'm right and you're wrong. And we have good reasons. There are always good reasons. Reasons that take us to war, whether against another country, ethnic group, race, religion, or, well, the lines we use to divide ourselves up into us and them, it's endless. And we're very good at defining how we're different and why our differences make us better. How to live and work in such a way that we can embrace the polarities that we reject on the visceral level. Truly, we cannot be reasoned out of what we've not been reasoned into. How do we build bridges and find common ground when all we taste is hatred, and we use that as the fuel for our lives with the energy of division and differences? This podcast conversation arrives in the season of withering decline and death, the Beautiful autumn with its falling, floating rain of leaves, crystal blue skies, and fading light. It's the season of Halloween, the Day of the Dead, and Thanksgiving, and it's a good time to sit with a conversation on death and the pilgrimage of transformation that comes in our lives as a sort of dress rehearsal for the day we leave the experience of time and space. In a moment, we'll be getting into this conversation with Tamsin Granger. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. 
This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. You know, many of these podcasts are easily listened to while driving or focusing on other things. But for this one, I invite you to make a cup of something hot and comforting. Find a place where you can look out into the world and watch what's happening before you and have a listen. Tamsin Granger, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. We're going to get into a conversation here on, uh, well, actually today, it's interesting. Today, as I look out my window, fall is beginning, and it's actually the first day of fall, the beginning of the decline of the year. And our topic today is death, death and decline. And this is one of those things, any practitioner who practices long enough, we're going to come up into this in our practice. It's going to greet us at some point in our practice. Of course, it greets us in our life at different points. As a practitioner, well, I can remember like the first time I was dealing with a very ill person and thinking, oh my God, what am I, what am I doing? It can be such a chasm to bridge if you, if you don't have a glimpse or a clue or some experience. I'm curious to know what got you started down this path? Well, like you say, really we deal with it all the time. We deal with the little deaths as we're new practitioners. And bit by bit, if we're keeping on going, it's inevitable, like you say, that we get to those chasms. I think the first conscious reason why I started working like this was the death of my dad. 
the very practical effect that had on my teaching and on my my practice as a as a practitioner. And then we came through the teaching, my decision to to make sure that my students had the opportunity to think about these things and to talk about these things while they were still students, because otherwise there was no specific unit that dealt with it. So that was the beginning. Mm -hmm. I love your phrase there, the practical effect of your father's death. It's the day-to-day things that impress death upon us, I think. It is part of our whole spiritual selves. But first of all, it's the day-to-day practicalities, the changes that it rings, the that it brings, the the effects that it has of interrupting life. It really does that. We're living in COVID time. We had the spring of COVID and then the summer. Now here we're coming into the fall of it. That's been a big disruption. I think a lot of people have noticed how much it has changed their movement, changed what's possible. I mean, it's been kind of a death. I I hear a lot of people grieving right now. Yeah, right from the word go, the shock of it, absolutely. The shock of hearing about it every single day, considering how much we try not to talk about death. It's like we turn on our radios, we turn on our televisions, we turn on our phones, we pick up the telephone and immediately it's facing us. That's, I think, the biggest thing that COVID's brought us. Would you call that kind of a gift? I think it's a gift in as much as it's an excuse to talk about it because I think we want to. I think everybody wants to on one level because, just to go back to what we started, it interferes with life all the time. So we know it's there. And if we don't think we have permission to talk about it, if we think we should be getting on with life, then we keep that inside. So yes, a gift, I think, um, certainly for the people who, who want to talk about it. But I think really we all do want to talk about it. It's a very taboo subject. Just a, a few moments ago as we were speaking, you were talking about how death every day kind of comes in in some way. There's just there's always some aspect of death that is impressing itself upon us. I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Well, you talked about the fall, which of course in the UK we call autumn. But the fall, the fall of the leaves, the stripping bare of nature down to its skeleton is around us always at this time of year. So there's one just just to begin with. And the fall, if you think of it in Christian terms, the fall from grace. You could say that every time we do something that we're not happy about having done, We have that little fall inside us, that little, oh, no, that happened again. I did that. A little mini death. And day by day by day, we get older. Minute by minute, we get older. We look in the mirror. We try, we bend over to do something. Oops, there's another little death that's just happened of vitality, of flexibility, of uh, being able to remember somebody's name. (laughs) 
if you think about death in that way, in those little tiny gradual changes, we're surrounded by it all the time. And which is brilliant because it means actually that we're practicing doing it. So like you say, it's a taboo subject. People think, well, I'm just going to like tackle it when I have to because it's so big, because it's so unknown, because I don't know what I will do or what will happen. But actually, we practice every day. We practice little deaths all the time. I, I was thinking of the uh, famous quote from Woody Allen about that he's uh, not afraid of death, but I just don't want to be there when it happens, <laughs> which is hilarious. And Yes, we do get a chance to practice something of, of release and loss all the time. Maybe the culture over there on your side of the pond is similar to the culture here in America. It's a very death-denying culture. If we're going to go into it, it's like we want to back into it, deal with it as quickly and efficiently as possible, and then get on with life. I have had, I can't tell you how many patients I've had who have lost somebody who was close to them. And a few months down the road from that, they're still missing that person. And they think that there is something wrong with them because they're so deeply missing this person. And every time I hear that, I think to myself, I even say to them at this point, you missing them is not something that's wrong with you. It's actually something that's right with you. Would you want to be the kind of person that wasn't missing your mother four months after she passed away? Well, they say that it's a measure of the love that we have with some for somebody the longer that we miss them. And if you think of it from that point of view, yeah, it's going to take a long time, isn't it? Then there are some people we're going to have to miss our entire life. And that's an inevitability. And some people miss people and things and situations for their whole lives more than other people do you know you all know that from your clients the people that let go and the people that don't the people that can accept and the people that can't so there's all these gradations with the people who we are and the people who we work with but it is true I don't think we forget the people who we loved who die we get we get used to it in a different sort of a way and I have clients, I'm sure you do, who, who come in 10, 20 years later and they start to tell the story and the tears come. And that is both appropriate and, well, touching, isn't it, to witness it? I find that to be kind of sweet myself. When a person is vulnerable enough to allow that to be there in the treatment room, allow that part of themselves to come forward, I, I usually take it as a good sign. It is a good sign. It's a sign that you are that you are not scared of it, that you are not backing away from it in the way that you just described some people doing it. I think we give out the message very clearly if we don't want to hear, if we don't want to be faced with that. Yeah, something I go on about a lot. As a practitioner, I have to keep facing death if I want to create a field of chi that allows somebody to express their grief or their fear or their anger if they want to. I had a conversation with a friend recently who's also a practitioner. 
and she was telling me about a patient of hers. I think a cancer came back. It was something. Her death was imminent. And she says, okay, we can talk about your living or we can talk about your dying. I'm up for either conversation. That really struck me to be able to be that clear and to recognize we can talk about either. And, and my suspicion is in a death process, we're talking about both. Well, that's what I, that's very much my response is that we're talking about both. I think I said to you, I was listening to your interview with Sabina and about the two aspects of change she was describing. Um, is it Hua and Bien? Oh, yes. Hua and Bien. And she was talking about the, the small changes and the, and the sudden irreversible change. And of course, I was thinking about my subject and thinking about death as that sudden irreversible change in one way, thinking about it in one direction. But before that, what they call now a good death is what you've just described. It's it's living and dying and living and dying and living and dying up until that big change. I don't think you can separate the two. Mm-hmm. Well, the way that you say change in modern Chinese is bianhua. But when you pull those characters apart, this is one of the things I love about Sabina's work is she she knows modern Chinese, she knows really ancient Chinese. When you pull those characters apart, it's exactly like when we began this conversation and you were talking about small deaths that you notice every day. Those are BN changes. And then there's the change that you don't go back from. And that's a Hua change. Pregnancy is a Hua change. Divorce is a Hua change. You know, breaking a hip is a Hua change. Yeah, yeah. And that was the beginning. I started off most of my specialty, my special areas were, was birth and pregnancy and birth and before I got onto this subject. So yeah, both ends of life. Are you surprised? Am I surprised now? Or was I surprised that that, that, that happened? Are you surprised that that happened? I didn't see it coming. I mean, I just lived lived through the in-between. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> that, that makes so much sense. I, I'm thinking there's times in my life, I'm not surprised, but I didn't see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, it's these unexpected things, isn't it? There is unexpectedness about birth, but not, well, I suppose, yes, there's some aspects of death which are expected. But on the whole, death is a little bit more of a, a sort of smack in the face than, than birth is. You, you know, you do get nine months always to prepare for that. You do not always get nine months to prepare for death. So, yeah, sudden and irreversible. You use the term a good death. What's that mean? Well, a good death, which is something that the World Health Organization has considered, is every individual's personal choice of how they move towards that last breath. So a good death for one person may be a medicalized death. They may need, want, require high levels of medication. A good death for one person might be alone. A good death for somebody else may be surrounded by family. A good death may be with touch, 
it may be not. So a good death is the death I want myself if I can choose or within within the choice I have. What does choice bring to it? I, I suspect you've worked with a number of deaths, you know, quite a few. You've written this book. What happens when choice is involved as opposed to when choice is not there? In terms of the ultimate choice, choosing to to die, and I'm not talking about suicide, I'm talking about assisted death, assisted dying. Just to start there, I think it that we think that there will be the ultimate choice, but even that doesn't have every choice available doesn't you still don't know how you will feel at that moment you still don't know how your family will be with you if they're there etc moving back from that to the deaths from that we have some warning for from cancer from chronic disability hmm, it's a really good question because you can answer it from the medical point of view, from the, the hospice point of view in this country. Well, you, you have hospices in, in the States mm -hmm. as well. You and you can answer it from Chinese medicine, Japanese medicine point of view. The hospice would like to say, and there are some very well-known books um, that are around at the moment where doctors say, we can completely choose. We can calibrate the level of medication so that we are not in pain, so that we have the dignity that we would like to have. That is our choice. In reality, that is not always a choice. Whether that's because calibrating those medications is incredibly difficult when the body is changing so quickly at that last stage or whether it's because of lack of communication, or whether it's because of misunderstanding, or whether it's because of ways that the body behaves that we still don't understand. So I think it's a very fine balance, this issue of choice. And I think it, you think you've really hit on something important, because I think that's what so many people would want. If somebody could wave a magic wand and say, it's okay, when the time comes, you will be able to choose we know a lot of us would be much happier. But we have witnessed other people's deaths, a lot of us, and we know that they haven't always been the, in inverted commas, good death that that person would have wanted. So choice is a really big thing. And I think that's where we, as complementary practitioners, come in because we have these other ways of of listening and diagnosing. We have these other ways of, of relating and communicating that the medical people don't have. And that's, I think, the biggest thing that I found from writing the book is, was that we are so well-placed to work in this area. We really have so much to offer. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, 
as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. There's a medical way of looking at death. There's a hospice way. And there's the lenses that we use that come to us through Chinese medicine. And, and in your case, shiatsu, Japanese medicine, that particular practice, and how it's so useful. I mean, we see this in, in life as well. People often come to us because there is a perspective that we have that sometimes is, is helpful. It's, it, you can't see it from the conventional medicine point of view. So with that in mind, I'd like to hear a bit more about how our medicine and, and the view of the world that it has is helpful at this most extraordinary moment of life. I think the first thing that is obvious to us but still needs to be said out loud is that you don't have to have words. We all work with words and we all value words, whether that's taking a case history, whether that's listening to somebody's story, but we don't have to have words. We have other ways of diagnosing. We have other ways of listening and acknowledging what is happening in the body. So when there are no words, either because there are no words to describe what somebody's going through or because they are physically unable to speak where maybe there are other people in the room who have very strong opinions, are even telling us, this is what he thinks, this is what she wants. So there are many, many situations where words are either not there or not useful, and we can manage that. We're not phased by that. We know how to do that. And that is unbelievably valuable. So even if we're in a very busy ward and there's things going on all around us, even maybe people pumping stuff in and out of our client or, you know, fussing over them or whatever, we can sit there quietly with, in my case, touch, in all of our cases, with touch. And we can express our sympathy and empathy and we can receive messages, if you like, from their chi without having to embarrass, without having to firm up, without having to upsettingly say something out loud. So that's the, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I think about how often in, in my clinic, it, there often are words. Of course, we use them all the time. But especially as a treatment begins to unfold... In my case, I use needles. I mean, I use a lot of touch too, but there, you know, there's needles involved. At that point, words are actually not helpful. At that point, listening to the chi is the key thing. The chi will let you know what's going on if you've got the ears for it. Sometimes words come out of the chi, and then I think it's very appropriate, or a noise, you know, or a, um, 
yeah, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be a, a spoken word. And that's when, you know, as my colleague Nick Paul would say, that's when the the chi is speaking rather than the brain is speaking or the conscious brain. But yes, if we don't have that connection, if we don't have that chi connection, we can't hear what we really need to hear. The words that come from the chi, that's a great description. And I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I've had experiences over the years. I hadn't thought about it as the words that come from the chi. But what I do know is there are moments in clinic where something gets said. I might say it, the patient might say it. Sometimes I don't, I don't know who said it. I just know that something gets said and something gets heard and things are different after that. I hadn't thought of that as the chi speaking, but that's that sounds right. Yeah, I think it's a it's an acknowledgement of a change that is happening or has happened. And when you can then put it into words, well, I think what you're saying is, aha, yes, we, we come together here. We are both acknowledging the same thing, bringing it into consciousness. Yeah, it's a palpable sensation. Yeah. So you use the words sympathy and empathy. These things are really different. How do you use each of those in the work that you do? Empathy is the one that I pay most attention to. Empathy is where I am hoping to be on the same wavelength as somebody. So you'll know in quantum shiatsu, there's this 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 vibration that we send that we send out that we each have emanating from us and if our if our waves coincide if the peaks and the troughs coincide then we have some connection and i think that's where empathy can be born from that that connection of the vibrations that the like a mirroring i was reading the other day that lovers hearts lovers who touch their hearts beat at the same time as each other so a kind of entrainment between mind, body, and spirit. Absolutely. A recognizing and a hearing and a saying yes, an expansion all at the same time. At that point of recognition, we say yes to that other chi, that other person's chi. Sympathy, most commonly, we would use it, wouldn't we, in terms of being in sympathy with somebody. We have to be very, very careful when we're working with grief and loss, not to sympathize, not to say, oh, yes, it happened to me too. I know what it is you're going through because I've been through the same thing. That type of giving sympathy is not recommended. We all know that as good practitioners. But it's very tempting because even more than many other situations in the clinic, we want to relieve that person of their pain or of their suffering. And so we reach a part of ourselves out of ourselves to them as a way of saying, yes, yes, I know, I know, I know too. Yes, this is something to be very careful about. Actually, not that helpful. That not would tend to shut the conversation down. It's switching the mirror around to face me, the practitioner. Any thoughts on how to stay with the empathy 
I mean, often when I hear the word empathy being used, what I'm really hearing is people saying, well, I'm talking to someone who's kind of like me and I kind of get who they are because I know who I am. And there's a lot of places in life and in our thought that we agree on. So, oh, I can, you know, I, I have empathy for them. But it seems to me empathy is a whole different thing than that. And I'd like to get your take on that. Yes, that wasn't the sort of empathy. I recognize what you're saying, but that's not the sort of empathy I was describing. No, you're right. And how to stay in that place is to stay congruent inside yourself, isn't it? Over and over again, when I think about how to find the words to describe this, I have the same experience. It's when I leave myself is how I, that's the type of words I keep finding coming to me. It's when I move out of me, it's usually out of my sort of heart space, to the other person. And as soon as I've done that, as soon as I've left myself, the sort of empathy that I was talking about is very hard. So for me to try to remain in the good empathetic space, I need to remain inside me. I have to keep hold of my chi within my core, within myself so that I can refer to it, so that I can hear it, so that I, and so that I am not, you know, becoming fixed on me um, instead of, or too much to their detriment. But it's so difficult to put it into words. You can hear me struggling to find the words. It's something to do with, with reaching, with leaving myself or remaining in myself. For me, that's the clue. And how do you know when you've left yourself? I mean, I'm sure it's different for all of us. Yeah, I expect like it is. You. And in different situations, mm -hmm. I think it's probably different. But I think overall, that's my chi rising, my heat rises, my color rises in my face, uh, my movements get quicker, I talk more. I, my breathing is more shallow. It's all of those things. My chi is the opposite of what we know. We talk about being in hara. I don't know what, what phrase that an acupuncturist would use, but when we are doing that meditation where we know where the ground is underneath us, we know where the air is above us and we know where we are, man, human, between those two places that's the opposite of it. <laughs> so it's it's when my chi is not there, um, up, out, loud, fast, hot. Those all ring a bell for me. Yeah? Yeah, they do. When I feel disconnected from the situation with the patient, I tend to get more verbal. I'm grasping. I feel like I'm grasping. Yes, that's the reaching out bit. If you think about a, a grasp, isn't it? It's like you put your hand out to take something. You move away from your center. Yeah, great word. And and what's different is when I notice my feet on the floor, how the chair feels against my butt, the feeling of the room, the color of the patient's face, where my breath is, is it up in my chest or down in my belly, these kinds of things. And, and that changes it. Yeah. And it's that Zen thing, isn't it, that you don't know until you've done it, when you, until you've practiced it, that being entirely 
in yourself or, or aiming to be in yourself is a better place to, as you just said, see the colour of the client, to hear the tone of their voice. So, which it seems like, you know, surely we have to go outside of ourselves to look to, to hear properly. But in fact, there's that Zen dichotomy, isn't there? <laughs> the more in me I am, the more likely I am to pick up their chi accurately. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. The more still I am, the more I am able to receive. Yeah. It takes a long time to learn this. Yeah. And discipline. What are some of the practices that you have that help you to do this? At the moment, I am doing a daily meditation, half an hour to 60 minutes, depending on the day. I return to my Qigong and my Tai Chi. And for me, walking, when I first started walking, long distance walking, um, four years ago, that was a real breakthrough for me. That was the time when I first had the idea to write about death for the first time. So that's about motion, enough motion within a natural setting, which stimulates me, stimulates my imagination, but which is that stillness, where there is that stillness around me. Those are the three big things, walking, meditation, and some form of energy exercises, the Qigong or the Tai Chi. Mm -hmm. You said long distance walking. How long is long? I walk pilgrimage. So that can be the longest one I did was a thousand kilometers from Seville to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. As we were coming out of lockdown, I thought I had been with my mother for five months and I did the first four days of the Pilgrim's Way in England from Winchester towards Canterbury. So that's probably the shortest one. So between those those two, more, more than a walk around the block. Way more than a walk around the block. And this throws a whole different light on the conversation now. Pilgrimage is a powerful word. It's a powerful experience. And, and you know, we're talking about death. Somehow for me in my mind as we're having this conversation right now, death and pilgrimage, they kind of go together, don't they? In so many ways they do. Death, life, and pilgrimage. Tell us more about that. Well, for sure the people who who started walking long-distance pilgrimage, for example, I don't know so much about, um, I'll just say right away, I don't know so much about Tibetan pilgrimage or Muslim pilgrimage, for example, but Christian pilgrimage from around medieval times, we know for sure, probably before. Well, actually, no, we do know before in terms of the Vikings was, yeah, it was it was to, to try very hard to make sure, talk about choice, that we went to heaven. That was the point of it. And that meant atoning for your sins. And so you go on a crusade and you kill a bunch of people in a war and then you go on pilgrimage afterwards and you get forgiveness for that um, and a place guaranteed in heaven. So that's where it began. Um, so yes, absolutely. It is closely connected with death in that respect, in the historical perspective. So it sounds like it originally was a method 
for dealing with PTSD. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, think about it. If you've just been yeah. in war, what are you going to do? Well, man, I got to walk that off now. You got to walk out of that life and into another one. Yep. Yep. I think it very much depended on which part of society you were in. So I think if you if you sat on the horse and instructed other people to do things, perhaps the PTSD was not as difficult as uh, pronounced as it might have been if you were running along behind the horse. And those people saved up their whole lives to go on pilgrimage. They went with nothing, partly because that was part of the pilgrimage to have nothing. Um, they only ate what they were given when they were there. They very often died on the pilgrimage. They were there, that's why there are places all along pilgrimages called hospital de something or other, because that's where everybody died. That was a different thing. So it did depend how much money you had and, and what your standing was in society. But I certainly, for the, for the foot soldiers, yeah, <laughs> it's a great way of putting it. And it is good for that. It is good for that. Walking, 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 step by step by step, focusing on your steps and on your survival is a brilliant way of dealing with PTSD. And if you need to walk from one place in life to another, I mean, literally, as well as metaphorically, start in one place and in another. That's why people go on pilgrimages. Absolutely. Begin at your doorstep end at your doorstep if you don't die on the way. And a change has been wrought, for sure. And people use it for that. I mean, the people I meet along the way are very often dealing absolutely directly with death. They are carrying somebody's ashes. They are carrying their own life-threatening diagnosis. They are carrying their fear at the surgery they're about to undergo. When they get back, they are, they are literally, they have death with them very many times. And if it's not that sort of death, it's, as you said earlier, it's divorce, it's change in life you know for me I think it was mostly my kids leaving home and my my loss of identity as a as a mother I was no longer needed as a mother I think it was much harder than I thought it was going to be even though I thought I was so conscious of it and that I had planned for it and so on but yeah I needed to walk it off in a way you're right I needed to keep walking from A to B to C to move myself into the second 50 years of my life, into the second half of my life. You're probably familiar with David White, the yeah. poet? Yeah. Yeah. So this was back a few months ago. He's He's been doing these like three Sundays in a row, and he'll pick a, uh, a topic. And this was back like in sort of the middle of the summer, and the topic was pilgrimage. We're in the middle of COVID. We're going through this thing together. And he did three Sundays on pilgrimage. And very much as you were saying, I mean, this really rings a, a bell for me, that there's something in us, but there's also something that, that's outside of us that we're moving toward. And that thing that we're moving toward is also inside of us, but it's not there yet. It's like there's a call and a reflection at the same time. Very few people know why they're going on pilgrimage when they start. 
I, th- I think I honestly, I mean, people who perhaps who who walk pilgrimage over and over again, perhaps they become clearer. But overall, people don't know why they're doing it when they start off. It's just this call, as you describe. It's this draw, this inner knowledge that something is needing to be transformed, and that for those people walking day by day by day is a way of doing it. So there's another thing that feels like that to me. And that's been my acupuncture practice. Didn't know why I started doing this. A hunch, a nudge that wouldn't go away. Start the process of learning medicine. Start the process of of having a clinic. Because I've got an idea that it might take me somewhere, but oh my goodness the places that it's actually taken me and the things I've actually learned by living into the experience of doing this work has a bit of flavor for that. Yeah. Uh, But now you've got me really interested in pilgrimage. It's just, this is like a theme that's been coming my way. I think I'm in trouble now. (laughs) You know, when something starts, you You know, it is when something like starts to show up. Seed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it took a long time. I mean, two at least two different women over a very long period of time talked to me about um, the Spanish Camino before I did it. And even when I went off to Spain for a sabbatical, which was what, which was how I started, that was what I called it, that I was taking a three-month sabbatical from my practice to to give myself this chance, yeah, as I say, just to sort of work out what's the topic for the next 50 years type thing. And even when I got to Spain, I did a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I moved around and I said hello and I stayed with people and I gave them shiatsu. And and it was really a deadline that just sort of was like, okay, I said I would do it. I better just do it. I'll just do a couple of days and then I can say I've done it and that's all right. And then that was it. <laughs> and then I didn't stop. So, uh, well, at least actually I stopped three times. I, I left the Camino and two days later I turned around and went back. It was very embarrassing because I had to let a lot of people down. So it was a really, really strong, strong feeling. This is so pertinent to talking about death. It very much mirrors the very first part of our conversation with the, the little deaths that happen day by day, moment by moment. It sounds like pilgrimage takes that and just ramps it up. Like when I go out for a walk, I'm often listening to like music or a podcast or a book on tape. It's like I'm going out to exercise my body and exercise my mind. And it sounds like pilgrimage is the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't listen to anything apart from the birds and the sounds around me and the sounds of my own body or the water in my rucksack. When you walk for long hours, especially if it's across a part of land which is has got less stimulation, so you are so much more aware of your stepping, you realise that every step is a death. Every step is a new life. Every step forwards, you leave behind what was then. And all around you, as you move from region to region, from field to town to mountain to forest, 
nature is moving on and transforming and changing and dying and being reborn around you. So these two things are just so precisely to do with with death and life that now that I'm writing about it, I realize, well, that makes sense. That was when, when this book was born, was when I did that first pilgrimage. So your book has the essence and taste of pilgrimage built into it. I wonder if it comes through. I don't know. <laughs> it's certainly there. And more and more, the presentations that I'm making about based on death and so on are involving walking. I did a course recently about which was five walks, basically one for each of the one for each of the five elements, and using walking as a way of connecting with each of the elements, each of the organs, and the uh, uh, an upcoming workshop series that I'm doing another five. The second one is a walk. Um, it'll be a, a, a guided walk about death and about the Po and the Hun and through walking. So I'm really trying to bring these two things together because they are part of the same thing in me. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Yes, yes, and in your process right now is exploring that and sharing that. Yeah, and I don't know, like you said about your acupuncture practice, I don't know exactly where it's going to take me. Well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> because if we if we knew where it was taking us, and we already we already sort of achieved the end, then why make the journey? We can't know. And I get it as human beings that we want to know. There's that part of our mind that really craves knowing. There's also this other part of our spirit, I think, that that truly can imbibe the not knowing. Can. It can. Yes. It's where creativity is born. Mm-hmm. So then you can do books and you can come up with classes and, and, and you can help your clients and your patients in ways that you didn't know you could help them. Yeah. And pilgrimage is like an acupuncture session or a shiatsu session. You know where you're going to finish, or at least you think you know where you're going to finish, even if it's just time-wise, one hour later, one day, one month later. But what happens in between 
that you don't know, how you achieve that end point you don't know. And that's the beauty of it, isn't it? it you know, it's the best part of it. And, and I run into this all the time, especially as I'm getting ready to actually put some needles in. And the patient says, so what are you doing? What are you going to do today? And the answer is, we're going to find out. Because <laughs> I, I generally speaking at this point, I know where I'm going to begin, but I don't know where I'm going to end. I know where to begin, and that's enough. And that's, that's why beginning at your doorstep, beginning with yourself, beginning at the beginning is such a good metaphor. So, yeah. You make that engagement, you enter into each other's field, you are with each other, and then you set off. I love it. I, again, this idea of pilgrimage has been knocking around at the corners of my awareness just because of some things lately. And so to be having this conversation in this moment and to connect that with a practice, the kind of practices that we do, that we've got an hour of space, but what happens within that, leaving that open for some mystery, um, but not, you know, not mystery like, oh, whatever, but, you know, this attentiveness that you're talking about that goes with the walking. So, And what you learn if you do more than one pilgrimage is that um, or if you read anything about pilgrimage, is that you will get lost at some point. You will run out of water at some point, or food, or both. You will run out of energy at some point. You will be faced with yourself, with survival. with, And that happens in our practice, doesn't it? Like you say, we get halfway through, we're listening to the chi, suddenly a word emerges from that chi from who knows which of us, and we realize we're dealing with deep grief. And if somebody stopped us and, at that moment and said, so what are you going to do about it? We, we couldn't say, except put one foot in front of the other, or in our case, hands and needles. What do you do in your sessions when you get lost? I'm starting to think that... It's client-led. So I used to always fall back on the basic form. And that's what I used to teach my students always. When you get to that stage where you're panicking, when you don't know, you go back to the beginning. You just go back to the beginning. How do you start? In our case, we start by palming down the back with two hands. We start palming down that section of the bladder meridian and we breathe and we we get back into hara and we reassure ourselves by doing that. So sometimes I still do that. But now I've realized that the person I'm touching often will show me the way. So sometimes I notice that I just become very still. Sometimes now I take my hands off. Now we were originally taught never to do that. I still teach beginners not to take their hands off normally in, in most circumstances. But now I sometimes do because I can remain in connection with my chi now that I've practiced doing it, even if my hands aren't in contact. I listen 
sometimes I realize there's a song playing in my head. Or like you said earlier, suddenly I smell something or I hear something happening in the garden and that triggers something and off I go. Sometimes the client says a word. Quite often, I realize when they suddenly start to speak, it's because they have noticed, maybe not consciously, that I'm struggling a little bit, I'm flailing. And so they say something, oh, I just had a sound of water flowing. I'm going, okay, I'll just start with water. (laughs) I'll go back to water. There we go. (laughs) Um, And it doesn't matter. It's something just to kickstart again. It's something just to get that flow going. But more and more I can sit with it now and just go, okay, I don't know. I'm stuck. I'm, that's interesting what's happening what sort of stuck am i hot stuck cold stuck what kind of stuck am i Mm -hmm. hot stuck cold stuck in other words i'm focusing on what do i feel under my hands or what do i feel in my hands or in my in my own system yeah i love working with temperature it's it's something i do a lot there was a point a few years ago when I could be very clear that I knew I had sort of lost the scent of what the treatment was. Because this phrase would go through my head, I would say to myself, well, according to the theory, and and I realized whenever that went through my head, I was lost. I was completely lost. and, And eventually I learned the thing to do was something very similar to what you were just describing, pause. And maybe go with something very basic. Oh, well, are we dealing with something that's excess here? Or is there a deficiency? What's more prevalent? And and see, oh, well, this is clearly a deficient condition. Oh, okay, great. So so now you're like picking up the scent again. Yeah, yeah. And of course, sometimes I realize that that stuckness is we're needing a break. That it can just be that. It's like something somewhere going, just stop, just stop for a minute. Something's happening or I just need a break, I just need a rest. So sometimes it's that. It's not that I've done something wrong. It's not that I've lost connection. It's that we just need to stop and I've just misinterpreted it as stuckness. Like a certain portion of the Pilgrim Trail. Oh, not many trees along here. Yep. It's when you, it's when you suddenly come to... And realize you've been thinking about this or that or swinging along, singing a song or whatever. And you realize, you, when did I last see a sign? Hold on a minute. How far back did I last see a sign? Oh, I wonder if I have to retrace my steps. So that's another thing. Retrace the steps. Makes perfect sense. And what you get in pilgrimage is space and silence. Especially at the beginning, we don't often leave space and silence, do we, in our treatments? I think the nervous practitioner doesn't doesn't normally do that. I think our modern world doesn't leave much no. space for silence. True. And, and I would COVID. agree, as a new practitioner, space for silence was terrifying. Absolutely. I think that comes with some time and some seasoning. And hearing you say that maybe this is one of the sort of core horrors of of contemplating death 
for those people who see after the last breath as being endless silence, endless pause, endless nothing. And we remember our our new practitioner selves finding that horrifying, then we can empathize. And I think about my more seasoned practitioner self imbibing the silence, trusting it really, that it, it, it because it has a kind of potency. It makes people uncomfortable, absolutely. Um, but I've found as a practitioner, if I can sit with the silence longer than the patient can, they'll often tell me something really interesting. And also what's going on under the surface. I mean, the cheese not stopping, is it? Even though there's silence. So what's it doing? So you've used the term a couple of times now, quantum, which is a term from like modern physics and I hear it here and there. I'm not exactly sure what it means in the context that we're talking about here today. Could you go into that a little bit? I will have to be very, very careful how much I go into this because it's not something I feel like a real beginner in it. Some of the things I've learned through the great quantum teachers, so I'm thinking Pauline Sasaki, Cliff Andrews, Patrizia, Stefanini, Nicola Pooley, these are the people I've been learning from a bit, is notions of the field, so the the collective chi that we we operate in can learn from, can influence, are influenced by, and then the shared field. The what I spoke about earlier, this this sense of resonance when when my wave connects with your wave, when I can, when I have a if you like a an opportunity to flow with you for a while. That came to me through some quantum teaching. Now, whether this is pure quantum shiatsu, as I say, this is not my specialty. I, I practice it. I mean, as a beginner practices it. And the sense of putting words to what probably we would have called auras 10 years ago, the light body, this sense of light emanating from the meridian network that we can sense, that we can see actual light. It is actual light they can see scientifically. So these are some of the the quantum connections between body work and Chinese medicine and, and Japanese medicine and, and physics. I think for me, it's putting a name to something which I have been working with all this time, something which I have been sensing. You know, when you meditate and you have that sense of that. The other day I was sitting and I had this sense of like a merry-go-round pole down the center of me, like a spiraling, moving. Do you know what I mean by that? It's all different colors and it's moving and so on. And then I listen to some of these teachers or read some of their work and it puts a name to that, that sense of movement, the shape of the vibration, the type of the vibration and so on. It's like an acknowledgement of, again, of something that is so difficult to put into words otherwise. 
Well, thank you for putting some words around it. I think the best we can do is wrap some words around something that does not lend itself very well to words. Um, the sense of field, and I think this is something all of us know, you know, we, especially as kids, you can sense it, right? As adults, you can, sometimes you just walk into a room and you go, mm-mm, no, no, something, no, mm-mm. Other times you walk into a room and, and ah, it's an invitation. I think anyone who's practiced for any length of time, there are those people and we, you know, we see that they're on our schedule and we go, ah, so looking forward to seeing them. And there's other people, it's like, ah, this is going to be work. Something about the fields there. Yeah. Yeah. And how we resonate together. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And it's an explanation of why, you know, you talked earlier about how differently you would use your needle if it was an, if it just to, to be sort of use a gross term about it, but excess and deficiency, for example. So the way we interact with the the field around the body, the way we know whether to use f- heavier pressure or lighter pressure, to use depth or what type of depth to to stay off the body in in our case or to or to penetrate. It's the vibration and it's the connection between our vibrations. It's within the field that is that is telling us those things. And it's offering us more and more a way of talking about what we do, especially to the more scientific-minded, to the people who are looking for proof. So it's very exciting. It has an incredible potential. So there's a scientific aspect that can be proven... There's also this aspect in my mind that goes, I'm going to say it's the opposite of science. It just has to do with recognizing a sense of being. Um, Now, there's always our imaginations, and we can imagine something's like this or something's like that. The wonderful thing about doing the kind of practices that we have is we can have these wonderful ideas in our head, but then we can observe and see what happens when we put those into action with uh, the people that we're here to help, I find sometimes I have a great idea and it's proven wrong by reality. Yes, absolutely. And I think if when you've got to that place and you have learned to, to manage that place in yourself, then you can start to work with death because it almost always will do that to you. I can almost all say that it will not be what you expect. It will not be the way you anticipate it, not in its finer detail anyway. So you have to be able to to face that. And as a practitioner, that's a lot, not only a lot of not knowing, but it's a lot of um, probably of emotion. It's a lot of, yeah, potent chi, I think you called it earlier. It's And not everybody can withstand that. You know, it's like a bomb going off around you and you remaining whole. That's how it can sometimes feel. It's so, it can be so big and so shocking. And you can't prepare if you don't know what it's going to be. You can't prepare in terms of, oh, here's my protocol. I'm going to do this point, then this point, then this point in this order. So the only preparation we can do is our being. It's the opposite of protocol. Yeah. 
we learned all of that. It was very important. We can fall back on it. There are very good reasons for it all being there, the protocols being there. But when we're faced with death, it's very often either unnecessary or impossible. So it takes some time to grow into the kind of practitioner that can sit with death is what I'm hearing. I think generally that's the case. I know that we do, sometimes you know we come across that phrase, an old soul. I, I suspect there are some people who have some knowing who, who can do that. But on the whole, I would say, yes, do not go into this work unless you are prepared to, to be with yourself. And that usually means that you've put in the years of practice. Mm-hmm. I think about how often we talk about life or we talk about practice as a journey, because it is. I've got this new sense from our conversation today that there's also this thing called pilgrimage, and it's different than journey. It's a different process. It sounds like pilgrimages are journeys, but not all journeys are pilgrimages. The mindful awareness of pilgrimage is not the same as taking even a long-distance walk. It's when you've committed yourself to doing something. It's like you have put yourself yourself into the hands of the pilgrimage, some sort of entity, and then it will sort of do what it will with you. And you have said by stepping onto that path, okay, throw it at me. I mean, I will, you know, work my way through it. You do know that you're going to learn something. You do know there is going to be some sort of transformation and you start mindfully. Even if we don't know where we're going, as, as we've said before. Well, we, we might think we know, but we're going to probably find something out along the way. So what I'm hearing you talk about, what comes to mind for me is surrender. That is a brilliant word, yes. And it's not the surrender of giving up, it's the surrender of giving in. And of opening. Mm-hmm. I think surrender is, is an opening. And I remember reading in the very first part of your book that death is not a passing over, it's a going into. Yeah. I think this is a lovely and sort of potent moment to wind this down. Let that feeling imbibe. Anything else that you'd like to share with us before we say goodbye for today? I think the beauty of this conversation and this type of conversation is about the meeting places. We have a shared basis, but our practice is essentially different in certain key ways. And yet there are all these meeting places and the meeting places are are between our practices, between our knowledge, between our humanities and, and reaching out into our lives, into the greater experience of living, isn't it? And that that's... I don't. It's lovely. It's like a sort of weaving. I feel it was like a weaving between, of meeting places between different practices, different 
thought processes, different chi paths. Yes, indeed. Well, I always love talking to you guys on the shiatsu side of the tradition. There's something that it seems that you get with your hands and the way that you're with people that I always find really nourishing in the conversations. And uh, I, I get a chance to imbibe that a bit and take it into my practice. So thanks so much for that. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Michael. We help people with transitions every day, help them release what no longer serves and embrace the emerging unknown moment of what life has in store. Inhale, exhale, we are constantly invited into the bardo of becoming. I find it somehow helpful to remember that we are helping our patients to die to that which no longer serves them. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.